Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Episode 38 is here, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy this one. I had a great time talking to our guest who flew the AV-8B Harrier uh, in combat, flew it for the U.S. Marine Corps, did some time in Iraq, and of course some time uh, all over the world, as uh, Marines typically do. I'll admit uh, early, I kind of geeked out just asking some sort of in-the-weeds Harrier questions, just because I've always been kind of interested in that aircraft, and uh, been trying to get a Harrier guy on the show for quite a while, actually. So I appreciate him coming on board and uh, and spending some time with us. Uh, I do have an announcement to make at the end of the episode, so please hang out and uh, stand by for that. Uh, but without further ado, let's hear from our guest toaster, Brian Anacaraco. I really hope I said his name correctly. So you did... Did you say you did 28 years? 30. You did 30 years. 30 yeah. years in the Marines. Yeah, were you not- um were you dropped on your head as a baby or was there any sort of head trauma at some point in your life like to lead uh, you to 30 years? Yeah, 30 years in the Marine Corps <laughs> make you retarded actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's an outrageous number. Yeah. That's The only reason I did it, I mean there's nobody in the Marine Corps crime for me, right? Like I I right. uh, squadron commander then i went up to newport rhode island and i you know did a uh, three years up there and then i went to uh virginia for, for a very short period of time like two months literally i got called because i was an alternate on um on the uh, command list mm-hmm. and i got called and said hey the uh y base commander was relieved do mm-hmm. you want the job and i was like yeah so i went from uh, basically from R- rhode island to hawaii and then to Eglin Air Force Base. So nobody's crying any tears for the Marine Corps uh, in the Marine right. Corps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Where bad. are you from originally? Uh, New York. How about you? Okay. Uh, Florida. Uh, Where in Florida? Tampa. Oh. Yeah, you said it like, like you were mad about it. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can never go home. It's, it's just too hot there now. Yeah. Sometimes... And- and crowded, yeah. And crowded, yeah. God, when I go back home, you know, where I grew up, it was, you know, right outside of Tampa, just cow pastures and just sort of, you know, I go back there now, there's completely new roads, there's, you know, everything. You get lost. It's, yeah, Florida is yeah. outrageous. And it's just so yeah. hot and humid. Where do you live now? I live in North Carolina. So I live out right, uh, right here at Fort Bragg. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's right. You told me that, actually. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it's all right. I wouldn't remember either. Um, yeah, so it's nice climate. It's not, you know, it gets hot, but not su- super hot. And it gets cold, but not super cold. We get we get snow every now and then. So, No, I love North Carolina. I lived over when I was flying Harris. I was at Cherry Point, so uh, I wasn't far from okay. it. And, uh, yeah. And uh, I loved it because the, what, the climate is perfect. They, I mean, because you get some cold, a little bit of snow, not much. Um, yeah. But everything's kind of mild in all the directions, and it's pretty nice, yeah. 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 It's weird. Like right now it's like 40 degrees outside. 
It's just out of nowhere. It's just super cold. It's been like yeah, that for a couple of days. Right now. It was, it's a kind of windy and clear and cool for, for this time of year, April. It's yeah. not unusual, but it's a little bit cooler than normal. Yeah. Yeah. The past few days have been pretty wild. Temperatures um, so when you joined the Marines, uh, imagine you were in college with your ROTC or did you do a different, different way of getting in? I went, uh, so the ROTC is a way you can go in the Marine Corps. I didn't go that way. I went to what they call platoon leaders class. Uh, okay. And that's where either you do two six-week sessions. If you join early enough, you do two six-week sessions in between your uh, sophomore and junior. Uh, after you complete your sophomore year, after you complete your junior year, and then you go into your senior year, and then uh, if, if they, they offer your commission upon, uh, if they want you, they offer your commission upon completion. I just did the 10-week course because I joined uh, as a – junior going in uh and i went for 10 weeks between my junior and senior year and then uh they offered me a commission and i went in right after i graduated okay and did you was there an aviation contract involved in that or is it just you're in the marines and then you got to fight for for the job you want later so there's what they call an air contract guarantee which i found mm. out later is just a physical and then they mm. don't tell you if you're going to pass it or not <laughs> So they, they, they kind of get you in and then, uh, and then they give you the physical, which I passed, of course. But, uh, you know, in retrospect, 30 years of flying. So I, it worked out for me. But there were some guys it didn't work out for. They had an air guarantee. They didn't pass the physical. Mm. And now they're in the Marine Corps, you know, for the minimum amount of time if they wanted to or, you know, whatever. And they right. had to be a ground MOS. So, yeah, mm. I, had an air, I had an aviation guarantee that would answer your question. Okay. And then you go through, we've had Marines on the show before, so I'm somewhat familiar with the training process, but you, you go through the, the normal Marine officer training and then you go off to do the, the flight stuff and learn to fly all kinds of smaller planes and then you select for, for what you want. Did you want Harriers? I did. I wanted to fly Harriers ever since I saw a, uh, I think it was the 60 Minutes episode on it in like 1970s. I was like, that's cool. Hmm. I want to do that. It was, a, it was yeah. they were talking about the British jump jet, and then I found out the British flew it. And I always kind of wanted to fly anyway, so it, it kind of worked out. You know, a lot, of, a lot of people want to fly, and they never really try to do it. And I was like, I'm right. not going to be that guy. I'm going to try to do it and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes people self-select out of it, right? They don't because they don't try because they assume they won't make it or, you know, or they assume it's too hard or something like that. I, I was that way. I mean, when I came into military, I wanted to fly since I was a little kid, but you know, I didn't have the greatest of grades. And then when I did join the military, I was like, well, I'll, I'll never be able to do that, you know? So I'll just be a tank guy. And I did that for a couple of years. And then just by just sheer like accident, meet some people that kind of encouraged me to try. And then I've switched over and, and yeah. Um, so that's good. So what, I mean, what drew you to the Harrier? What, what was interesting about it to you? Well, I just thought it was, uh, I thought it was when I saw the, the, the piece on TV, I was like, that's pretty cool. You know, it can hover, it can fly like a jet, it could do all this stuff. And of course they talked it up, you know, like, cause, uh, <laughs> at the time, you know, real new technology and all that stuff. Sure. So it just seemed like, uh, something that I would want to do. And, uh, and so I, I kind of pursued that, that path anyway. Yeah. Uh, I guess no special reason. You just take a liking to something, you know, in life, you know, right. Like you pick your wife. I, I, why'd you pick your wife? I don't know. I kind of liked her, you know, like, yeah. 
So, yeah, yeah I don't know. Um, so what was that like the first time getting into one? So it's a long process to get into one, but uh, getting into one uh, wasn't so uh, mind-boggling. But when I first hovered, it was a little bit mind-boggling because you're not supposed to be able to do that, you know. So like we went through when I when I went through training, we we I went through T34s. Uh, first, you go to uh, Pensacola, you go through your aviation indoctrination, and you go through. Uh, I went through Whiting Field uh, in Milton, Florida. And uh, went to T-34s there. And from there, you select uh, which where you go. You're either going to get helos, jets, or props at that point. So you still don't know what you're going to fly. Once you get selected, uh, at the time, only the top guy in the class was getting, uh, was getting jets. And I tied with a type, top, for the top guy in the class with another guy. And they're like, I told oh. him, give you both jets. Oh, so wow. we, both, we both went jets. So... Um, <clears throat> anyway, uh, when it's, once you go to jets, you never know what you're going to fly. So in the Marine Corps at the time, there were, you were going to go either fly, uh, Harrier, uh, F-18 Hornet or a EA-6. Uh, well, they still had EA-6 and they had the, they had the, the, um, the, uh, Prowler and the, uh, the A-6 as well still. And they also had uh-huh. A-4s when I first got here, but they were being phased out, so they weren't training pilots for that. So you had really basically three choices for the most part because the, A- the A-6s were being phased out, the A-4s. And uh, so you were looking for, at Harriers, Hornets, or uh, or Prowlers. Okay. Where'd the other guy go? He went to uh, – he, he, he basically went to the same we, – we went the same track. We ended up going through Harriers together. Uh, okay. He ended up getting out of the Marine Corps. Uh, after his, you know, first tour, but, uh, uh, we, we, we went through the same stuff. We became real good friends actually. Going to the Harrier track. I mean, obviously you, you probably spent a lot of time in simulators and stuff before you actually got into the real thing. I'm, I'm going to assume. Yeah. Um, but, but getting into that first time, I mean, you, you finally arrived, right? I mean, something that you wanted to do since you were a kid. Yeah. How, how did that feel? So, uh, it, it was, it was pretty cool because like when you first get into, I don't know. If, like, let's say you're a civilian and you get in a jet. It looks like whiz bang stuff, right? Right. Yeah. You learned it all. I mean, like yeah, you flew, you know what I'm talking about, right? Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. like, what are all these gauges and dials and what does all this stuff do? And then once you learn it, it's like, well, it's really not that whiz bang, you know? Right. And uh, so the first time I got in, I was kind of like in awe and I'm like, I hope that I can fly this thing. You know, right? yeah, <laughs> it was, was kind of like, just went through T2s and A4s that, which was the training track for jets at the time. And I, was able to pick um, AV8s, and then I got in, and I'm like, "Wow, this is all kind of really whiz bang stuff." And uh, and once you got in the simulator and learned what it all did, it wasn't really that whiz bang. It was it was you know it was standard stuff. I guess it's kind of like you know like when you're playing football, like you watch like as a little kid in Pop Warner, I would watch the varsity kids. You know, and those guys were like basically like the NFL to you as like a little kid. And then right. you get and you're playing varsity and you're like, wow, this isn't so bad. You know, like, yeah, yeah. Um, these guys aren't so, you know, like once you get into, it was almost the same thing when I joined the military, like, you know, like you joined the military and I, I came from New York. So I had no idea what kind of expect, you know? And so I, I show mm-hmm. up for uh, my first, you know, for 10 weeks of OCS and I see all these guys and I'm wondering, I'm like, am I even going to make this? You know, like you, you have that doubt in your head. 
And, uh, you know, it was like, these guys all look like they're in really good shape, you know, like, (laughs) and then you find out, you know, like, okay, I can, I can not only make this, I can actually do very well here. You know, like you find out that, um, you know, you, maybe, maybe you think, maybe you have your doubts, but you, you, you can push through more than you think you can. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's, it's exposure to things that then allows you to, to do it, you know, cause I, I share your, your experience of getting any cockpit of any aircraft I've flown. You, you just look, I mean, the, I remember the first time I got into a 737 and I was just like, Oh my God, like, look at all these things that I'm going to have to learn. There's no way. Yeah. And then, you know, a, a, a month later, because you, you, your brain just starts picking it out. It's like, okay, there's a lot of switches here, but all these switches handle this thing. And then all these switches handle this thing. And then, you know, you sort of categorize it. And again, once you have some exposure to it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So for, for training the Harrier, I mean, obviously, I'm assuming you guys start out just kind of flying it like a jet. You're just taking off, rolling takeoffs, all this stuff. And then you kind of work you up to the hover or how, how does that work? So, uh, well, like you hit it on the head. Like first thing we do is we get in the simulator and we do a bunch of different stuff, right? So you're coming out of the A4, so you're used to rolling land on. So, uh, uh, rolling landings, I mean, um, so you, you're more comfortable with that. So they bring you up and, uh, in a, in a TAV8, which has a back seat. So you have an instructor in there with you. Okay. And, uh, so they, they put you in a simulator, put you through all the different kinds of landings. So you have, uh, you can land anywhere in a Harrier from like zero, which is a hover. Uh, up to 180 knots, which is the uh, nose nose wheel speed for the uh, gear, and wow. so, but, but with those little tiny outrigger um, gear that you have, um, so you have two center mounts, right? You have you have a center mount gear, a nose gear, and then you have the the two little wing gears. Those wing right. gears, when you land, you didn't know it at first because you were so used to landing, but but it, as you start be able to stop and then land it becomes so much easier because it's, it's, you just land and then pull power and you're stopped and you can go where, you know, start taxing wherever you want with the, uh, with those little out, out uh, <clears throat> with the little out gear, the wing gear, it's like landing on ice and you don't even know it, but you were just kind of used to landing like that. And then after a while in the Harrier, you went from not wanting to land, uh, on a rolling landing, you wanted to kind of hover or do an RVL, which they call a rolling vertical landing. So you land about, I don't know, 60 knots or so. And that's very comfortable too, because you can come in on a really steep glide path because you're flying power all the way down. Right. And uh, you can touch down and the, the gear on a Harrier is made to compress. So it's, it's, uh, you can, you can put it down pretty stiff, you know, and uh, so you can come in with an RVL, put it down, you know, pretty hard. Uh, you know, not like 2,000 feet per minute, but uh, you know, probably <laughs> 750 or so. And uh, you can put it down pretty hard, and the, the, the gear takes it because it's made to compress. And uh, now you're doing 60 knots, which is, you know, as you know, not that fast in an aircraft. So, right. uh, so you know, preferably a hover. Like uh, after you get into the Harrier and you start doing it a while, you, you like that better. And then the RVL is second choice. And then the last choice is – an emergency procedure is a roll-on landing because you're going pretty fast when you mm-hmm. come to a rolling landing. Hmm. Yeah, it seems like um, whenever I watch video of of Harriers landing, they they drop it a pretty good lick out of that hover. I mean, they're not slamming it down, but they're not they're not sort of inching their way down. I mean, they're dropping seem like a couple hundred feet per minute rate of descent. 
Yeah, well, we do that for a reason. So we have uh, <clears throat> on the bottom of the jet, we have a thing called a lift improvement device. Mm-hmm. And uh, if uh, if you come down and you get in ground effect, you have the uh, the, the upwash from the uh, the nozzles get caught mm-hmm. in that lift improvement device. And if you don't push through that, you'll kind of wobble and, and, and like waffle in the air there. So you want to kind of push through that. Uh, right. And uh, and on a ship, you want to, especially if the ship's rolling a lot, you want to put it down. You don't want to, you know, be uh, tentative with it because uh, you want, you don't want to like snap an outrigger. Uh, right. So, yeah. Yeah. You don't want to dance around and get caught on something. Just, just get it done. Exactly. And, yeah, and, and the gear could take that too. So it right. really that big a deal. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's cool. Um, kind of the same thing with helicopter. Like when I went from flying Kiowas, which had skids to then flying Apaches, which were beefier and had wheels and stuff. And, you know, I remember the like sort of dancing around cause you know, in the Kiowa with the skids, you did kind of want to land a little bit more gently than normal. Cause you didn't have a lot of absorption of shock. And the guy I was flying with was, you know, he's like, just stop being so, so, you know, gentle with it. Just put it down. He grabs a collective and just, you know, pushes it down and we just slam into the ground. And just, but like you said, just same thing, just absorbs it and is able to take it. Yeah. Sometimes that's what you got to do. Um, so, um, is that your phone or what is that? No, that's, that's emails coming in. You know what? Oh, I don't know how to shut that off. Actually, so. <laughs> that's all right. Um, so uh, the Harrier, we're kind of talking, we're kind of maybe getting ahead of ourselves. I mean, explain what is special about the Harrier. Obviously it's hovering, but, but why, like, why do we want a jet that can hover? What does that, what does that give us? So the Marine Corps concept, um, is, was all beast, all force, uh, at least during the two thousands, uh, and earlier. And even now it is, I mean, cause we have the F 35, Bravo, which is a, a V-stall aircraft as well. So wh- why you want to be able to land? So if you're fighting an enemy, say a pure competitor, let's pick China, uh, and they take out your runways, how are you going to operate, right? So like if you have a F-16, he's a long runway, uh, great aircraft, but if they bomb out the runway, they can eff- effectively shut down your aircraft. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you can operate out of a austere location, say a roadway or section of a roadway or whatever, they can never shut down your aircraft. So um, uh, vertical and short takeoff and landing, uh, which is what BSTAL stands for, uh, it became a very interesting concept because we could set up closer to the uh, front lines uh, and have uh, generate sortie rates and, and, and start putting more uh, ordnance on steel and all that stuff. Logistically, it's a little bit harder, but um, what you can you can always operate. So we can operate in a confined landing site. We call it a cow confined area landing site. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really wish I could turn that off. That's annoying. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, and it's seventy two by seventy two square feet, and you can put a Harrier into there. So you can land. You can literally mm-hmm. have uh, be doing a confined area site and land in seventy two by seventy two feet and operate out of there if you really had to, right? But the problem is, depending on the temperature outside, the, the, the engine thrust and the weight of the aircraft. So how a Harrier hovers is the weight of the, th- uh, the thrust of the aircraft overcomes the weight of the aircraft, right? So mm-hmm. uh, you have a the Harrier basically, we just use round numbers of roughly 16,000 pounds with a radar aircraft, right? So 
16,000 pounds, you have to have at least 16,000 pounds of thrust to overcome that, right? So if you have 16,000 pound aircraft and 16,000 pounds of thrust, you could just hover. You can never take off. You would, you, you would just get light in the, and so you had to have something that breaks out. So Harrier puts out a uh, 408 engine. I'm trying to remember the numbers. I think it's like 26,000 pounds of thrust. So you mm-hmm. had a pretty good, uh, uh, you know, thrust to weight ratio. Uh, so what ends up happening is by the time you put fuel in it, you know, internal for a Harriers, they call it seven, seven, but it's really about seven, five on a gauge. You might see seven, two, seven, 7,200 pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, that that all gets added into what you have to take off with. So you have a let's call it a sixteen. Let's just reuse round number sixteen thousand pound aircraft. You have seven thousand pounds of fuel. Uh, math for Marines is twenty three thousand pounds, right? And then so now you have three thousand pounds of slop that you could put on there. So like if you have a gun that weighs X amount of, of weight, and if you have a bomb, right. so you can't really vertically take off. So what happens is we have super critical wings on the uh, Harrier, and uh, they create lift all the way down to about 40 knots it's just a uh, noticeable lift down to 40 knots let's put it that way that's why in rvl you can come in if you're overweight on a vl a vertical landing you can come in and do a rolling vertical landing because you have about uh if you're doing rvl you probably have about 25 26 depending on how fast you are extra uh, uh 2600 more pounds of thrust of lift because your wings are, are picking up some of the lift in a pure vertical landing, it's only the engine picking up the lift. So if you have 16,000 pound aircraft and you have 7,000 pounds of fuel, it's 23 and it's 26.5, say for the thrust, you have 3,500 pounds of whatever you want to put on there. So mm-hmm. uh, if you're going to do, you know, vertical takeoffs, you're going to be very, very light. It, it, in, in most cases, quite frankly, uh, depend on the engine, the temperature, and all that stuff. You probably wouldn't even be able to do vertical takeoff with any kind of ordnance on there. And fuel, right. you normally have to burn down to have the uh, acceptable performance and so on and so forth. So anyway, you want to do a short takeoff. So short takeoff uh, is we call it a stow. And uh, we just we get up some airspeed. We, we pull the nozzles down, in this case, 55 or 60. And then you take off um, and you have... And the thing accelerates, especially on a cold day, like a scared cat. So you get you, you get airborne, it kind of jumps into the air and you start nozzling out and you start accelerating. And then uh, you have you have all that extra weight that the wings picking up the weight on so you can load up. So like when we take off from a ship, we take off with a full combat load because we have, you know, depending on what the LSO computer says, you know, 650 or 700 feet. And then we mm-hmm. have... Uh, the stow off a ship is a really nice stow because there's no ground effect. You just take off and you, and you're in clean air, but, right. uh, but you take off of the ship and, uh, and you, you, you can, uh, take off of the full combat load, especially with a, a short takeoff. So, uh, and then you always come back to the ship in VL. So that, that was the whole concept is the concept of working for a short takeoff and vertical landing was to work in austere locations and also work from ships without the use mm-hmm. of the catapult. If the catapult goes down, you know, you're not going to take off an F-18 uh, right. because, or an F-35. Uh, what's it? The C is the, I guess it is. I think it's a C. Yeah. It's the C is the Navy version. You're not going to take that off without a catapult. So if the catapult goes down, a ship ship is kind of stuck until they fix the catapult, where with ver- vertical aircraft, um, you can take off with and without a catapult. So you're not, you're not kind of dead in the water, so to speak. Um, yeah. 
when, when you when the catapult was down. Now the AB, the Navy will argue because of force structure that the big deck carries the way to go and so on and so forth. It's an age old argument, and you know they they don't want to go to the V stall. They don't want smaller ships and so on and so forth. So it's all becomes political at that point. But it is you know the Navy's got their points. We have our points. But uh, I, I think the the Stovall version of stuff um, is the future, really. Quite. I mean, you see the V twenty two. You see the uh, with the new army program they have, and and uh, there's all kinds of stuff that's coming out that's going to be able to um, vertically take off and land. So uh, I, I think it's the way of the future, personally. Well, it's that uh, sunk cost theory or, or whatever. You know, if you've you've spent how many billions on on big carriers, you're not going to go out and say, well, you know, we probably don't need these. <laughs> you know, like you're gonna, you're going to double down on on all that money you spent. Oh, no, absolutely. But, you know, the, the interesting thing is uh, 231, that's a squadron that I, I commanded in uh, 2007. But in the, in the 90s, they did a, uh, a concept, of a demo, basically, a con- proof of concept. And they mm-hmm. went out onto a carrier and they found out that, you know, you can, you can launch and, uh, and recover vertical uh, on a big deck carrier. And it's, it's actually because of the angled deck and, and, and the uh, – the way the carrier is designed is actually very efficient. And uh, the Navy didn't want to hear anything about that because, you know, obviously they had their, <laughs> their programs already set up and all that stuff. So anyway, it, it is what it is. But uh, everything in life is political, right, as we see in our country. Oh, today. yeah. Yeah, the money and yeah. Yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. So for the Harry, I mean, we're spending a lot of time talking about hovering, but that's kind of one of the neat features of the thing. How how does it actually do that? So I know there's the big nozzles that swing around, and that's I'm I'm assuming the, the majority of the thrust. But there's four of those, right, along the fuselage, two on yeah, each side. Well, but then there's some little on the wings. Like how does that work? Well, yeah. So um, yeah, that was a question you originally asked me. I went off on a tangent. I apologize, but. Uh, so yeah, anyway, you have uh, the thrust of the engine has to overcome the weight, right? But uh, we have nozzles that we can point aft, so it'll be like a conventional jet, or mm-hmm. we can roll them down. And like you said, there's four, two cold nozzles, two hot nozzles um, on the jet. And as it, you, you basically, when you point them down, they become four columns of air that you're kind of sitting on. So it'd be like kind of like uh, standing on top of a, like a big gigantic basketball if you were like trying to stand on there. It's kind of unstable. So we have a thing called reaction control system, which takes bleed air from the engine and puts them out through ducting to the wingtips, the nose, the tail. So you, while you're hovering, you can, you have every access. You can, you can, you can go left, right, up, nose up, nose down. You can go uh, yaw with the tail. There's a yaw uh, reaction control system. So you can do like spin around in the air. So you have you're, you're sitting on these four columns of air that the, the, the thrust of the engine is pointing down. It's kind of unstable. So to make it more stable, the reaction control system uh, has these like, for lack of a better word, they're just like little jets on the end of the uh, uh, end of the wingtips, up right. in the nose, in the tail, and then on the tail. The, there's really two on it. Well, really three if you count them. Right? There's one that, that on the tail that opens and closes to make the tail go up or down. Mm. Uh, really up because the nose would make the tail go down. But and then you have the reaction ones on the side that uh, when you use the rudder in the hover, they open or close and it pushes the tail left or right. So hmm. that's how that's how uh, you can maneuver in the air while you're hovering. So is there any automation? I mean, obviously that's computer 
I'm assuming computer controlled, you're not manually moving these, these levers open and stuff, but is there any sort of automation where like a stability control? So if you're just at a hover, it's firing these, these thrusters to keep you stable. And then you're kind of overriding them if you want to slide or move or something like that. How, how does that work? So on a Harrier, uh, everything is done manually, right? So, but we have a stability augmentation system called a SAS, okay. S-A-A-H-S, stability augmentation, uh, I forget what the A is, uh, handling system. Anyway, it, it, it basically, what it does is it, so the, the early AV8C, the first version didn't have it and it's really squirrely to kind of fly. So what it does is everything's still put in manually, but the, the augmentation system, SAS actually makes it uh, more stable. So your your inputs are kind of, uh, I don't know what the right word is, dampened out, I guess. Dampened, right, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and so you're not, you're not like um, over-controlling as much as you, you would. And then we have a, a thing on a, the stick called a paddle switch. And what that does is it turns off the uh, augmentation system. So you, like if we have an emergency and the augmentation system fails, we have to practice that. So come in without any augmentation, and the, the jet is a lot more squirrely um, right. uh, with with the augmentation system off, but it's definitely handleable. You know, it, sure. you can definitely handle it. I just made up a word, okay. handleable. And um, handleable. Yeah, 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 yeah. Handleable. <laughs> How do you say that? But, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, yeah. But that's that's uh, you have these uh, uh, the SAS system, which helps. To, uh, but everything else is done manually. So if I want to go nose up, I pull stick back, nose down, stick forward. Right. And what happens nose back, uh, the front puffer duct is what we call them. The jet, the front jet opens and lifts the nose up. If uh, you want to go forward, you push the stick down. The back one opens, pushes the tail up. And and then so it's it, there's a lot of things. So like when, when you uh, when you're hovering, like you push the tail, you start going forward, you're losing a little bit of thrust because you're not, now your, your, your thrust isn't exactly down. So you have to add a little, right. it becomes kind of an art on how to do it. But when you get yeah. good at it, it's kind of like riding a bike, right? Like riding a right. bike at first was hard and then it wasn't. So once you get good at it, you get pretty good at it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's the same concept of helicopters. You know, you're, when you're in that mode, you don't have the thrust pushing you forward. You're basically just changing lift to create thrust. But like you said, if, as I move that, that lift vector forward, it's no longer as high as it once was. I've got to have some power to, to offset that stuff. So it is, it is, it's difficult to explain, but once you figure it out, it makes a lot of sense. Um, so I'm interested, have you ever flown a helicopter? Have you ever been in the Cockpit just, and flow? Just a simulator. Just a simulator uh, of a, okay. a CH-53. And uh, okay. everything was backwards to me. Like, so like, uh, really? uh, yeah, because the collective, you know. Uh, oh, yeah. Fair on a, so in a Harrier on the left side, you have the throttle, right? Right. So if you're, let's say you're hovering, right? Throttle forward makes you, it gives you more power, makes you go up, you know, yeah. increase altitude coming down, you pull. Um, yeah. And you and you come down where it's just the opposite. If I remember in a, in a fifty three, you have to pull, you yeah. pull collective to get more more lift, right? Right. So it was back, yeah. right? And and I was that was that was kind of screwing me up because I'd flown Harris for so long. So it took me like literally like forty five minutes in a in a simulator uh, <laughs> with a really good instructor, really really good dude, and he was he was he was very patient with me 
but uh, <laughs> flying the CH-53 simulator, and, and I finally got it. But, I mean, it's pretty cool. Helicopters are, uh, you know, designed to hover, right? Like, Harry's designed to hover, too, but it's really more of a transitional thing. You know, you want right. to hover it for a reason to get to jet-borne yeah. flight. It, um, it but, can hover, but it's not supposed to. You're yeah. not doing like the uh, the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie and hovering around and shooting stuff. Yeah, which was totally that that movie cracked me up. But anyway, yeah, <laughs> movies crack you up, right? But, yeah, well, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. But so, yeah. but but from a handling standpoint, though, I'm interested. Like, did it like from the the lateral movement type? Did it feel the same? Was it was it very similar from Harrier to helicopter? You know, the lateral stuff was it was about the same. Yeah. A Harrier, you have to be more ginger than a helicopter. It seemed like a helicopter was more stable, mm-hmm. right? Um, at least a simulator. We got, like I said, I never flown the real one, but sure. just, um, it seemed like it was more stable. Where a Harrier, like you have to set it and kind of let it do its thing, and then you got to kind of correct it back. Uh, it seemed like the the helicopter was a little bit more intuitive, and it just you just can make it happen. I don't know. It was kind of weird. It, like a Harrier, you had to be very deliberate about things, where a helicopter seemed like you didn't have to be that deliberate. Yeah. I don't know. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like you said, if one's designed to, you know, operate in a certain environment and the other can, but doesn't necessarily want to hang out there. Did you have a lot of um, symbology to help you, like on the HUD when you're hovering? Or was it just completely just your eyeballs? No, no. You had a, um, so in the HUD, you had everything you needed. To, I'm sure you had, you had a HUD in Apache. I know that. Did you have it in the, in the Kawa? No, oh, no. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, on the HUD, we had all our airspeed, altitude, all that stuff. But the one, the main thing that in the Harrier that we had in the HUD, we have a velocity vector. So we have basically a, a horizon and we have a, a velocity vector and we have a, what we call the bird, which is basically, mm-hmm. it's a little dot with wings on it. So it looks like a little airplane. So yeah, your little flight path vector type thing. Well, yeah, the flight path, yeah, flight path vector. And then we had a velocity vector too. So we had two of them. Right. So, mm-hmm. like, you can have the flight path vector on the horizon, like when you're hovering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then your velocity vector could be below the flight path vector, which means you're descending. And then, mm-hmm. or you're, if, you're, if it's above, you're, 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 you're climbing, right? So, we have a, a velocity vector. So, anyway, yeah, that thing helped out more than anything because if, if you didn't see it, you knew it was where the, the uh, flight path vector was. And uh, you weren't, you were, you know, straight and level, whether you're hovering or not. But, and then also, you know, uh, it turned into in a hover, uh, you, you had two of them, but in a, when you're straight flight, you just had the velocity, the velocity vector was the flight path vector. So if you were below the horizon, you were descending, if you were above, so it, it, right. it was very useful, um, piece of gear for the hover, the two of them. And then the single one, uh, when you're flying. So like if you're doing dive recovery rules, like you want to come break out so that you're not going to hit the ground, you know? Uh, the velocity vector was, was basically your life as you look. I mean, you're looking outside and all the other stuff too, but you always, you always sure. cross check in a velocity vector. What, um, and I'm, I'm totally nerding out on you by the way, because you know, I'm a flight sim nerd and I've got a Harrier simulator. So I like to, I like to play around with it, but um, what is the mentality of the way that the Harriers land on the ships where they come in on the side and then slide over is there what's a practical reason that they do it that way versus like coming just straight in and landing okay first off you get a little um 
you get off the back of the ship because the wind is, should theoretically be down down the center of the ship. There's mm-hmm. a little uh, burble on the back of the ship. We want to just okay. avoid that um, okay. because it comes off. But but that's not really the reason. The reason is you want to make sure that the so I was a LSO also uh, in the tower. So you want to make sure that the guy's under control. And he's got this landing. Otherwise, you send him around and have him come back around. Because if he's coming mm-hmm. in too hot, he's going to try to pull the nose up, and you lose sight of the ship. Sure. And out and over the ocean, there's nothing out there really to like kind of get your bearings on. You can get disoriented pretty quick, especially at night. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and we almost got killed at night. I was in the tower, and a guy I won't mention his name was coming in, and he got disoriented. And I swear he was going to hit the tower. He must have missed the tower with his wing by, I don't know, three feet. And uh, we waved him off. He got his bearings back and came back and landed. Th- you know, thank God. But uh, the, the real reason is you bring him along the side, you get him stable, and then you clear him to cross. And he'll cross. And now, uh, because he can't, he doesn't have a lot of reference points to see out there, right? I mean, yeah. you, I don't know if you ever flown a helicopter on a ship or not. Uh, mm-hmm. But, it, you know, you don't have a lot of reference points. So you, you come in so you can see the ship off your right side. And then yeah. you have all the reference points. And then when you cross, you still see the ship. You, so you, we want to make sure that he's controlled crossing so he doesn't, he doesn't hit the tower or he yeah. doesn't hit the ship. And then we want to get him stabilized. And because there, there's a little system there that tells you if you're at the right height and all that stuff, right? So you want to get mm-hmm. him stabilized. He's looking down. Now he can see the front of the air, uh, the front of the carrier. So you can see the line, center line yeah. of where he wants to land. He can see the tower. He can look down. And now if he's stable, he can look straight down and see the deck. Not directly underneath him, but to the sides. So right. then, when it, when you clear the land, you just you, you set up a pretty good rate of descent. So because you, you want to put it down and then go idle immediately. So yeah. uh, the reason to answer your question, the reason that we bring him up the size, a make sure he's stable, b for reference points, and uh, c so he doesn't hit the tower or the burble off the back of the ship. Okay, yeah, I guess I'd never thought of it in terms like you said the reference points because if you're coming in at a steep angle. Uh, this was particularly tough in the Apaches. You couldn't see past the nose. I mean, we could turn on the pinvis and just use the the sight that's on the nose and basically look through the aircraft. But but for whatever reason, if you you couldn't see where you were going, at least you could look left and right and say, yeah. okay, my intended landing point is a beam. This you know the taxiway, so yeah. I can't see my intended landing point, but I'm a beam that I I'm I'm still heading a beam the taxiway, so I know I'm on the right path. But yeah, what you're saying is if you're coming in. Uh, steep angle on the ship. You, you look left to right, you just see water. So I never, yeah, I guess I never thought of that. That's a good point. Well, the other thing on a ship, and you bring up a great point, like a beam, like, so like you may have to come into spot six, right? Or seven, they try to bring you into spot seven, which is the last spot. But if you have to come into spot six, but th- there may be helos turning in front of you. There, there, there's aircraft. So you're trying to put that jet into a pretty tight area, you know? Yeah. So you have yeah. to be under control and you have to have your reference points. Otherwise, you know, you don't want to land on a helicopter or hit a helicopter or, or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, so it, it, that, that's why you, you get them stabilized and controlled. Then you clear them across. Because if he's, if he's out of control and he's out over the water, he's not going to hit anything. You have him wave off straight ahead or just slightly to the left. Because yeah. you're coming in and you're on the left side of the ship. You have him wave off and now nothing but water out there. There's nothing to hit. But yeah. if you bring him in straight over the ship and he waves off and he settles, he could hit a helicopter mm. or something that's in front of him. Yeah. No, totally. Well, let's talk about it as a weapons platform. So what was a, a normal, I say normal, but what's a customary loadout from a from a weapons standpoint of, of the Harrier in action? 
so it depends. I know it depends on the situation. Yeah, so that's why I say not normal. But what's something, you know, just I guess talk about the weapons in general. Yeah, in, in Iraq, we were, uh, we had a gun on, uh, mm. which adds, you know, roughly a thousand pounds to the weight of the aircraft. But we had a gun, it's a 25 millimeter, very capable gun. Uh, uh, does a great job on the strafe and a very accurate too, especially if you uh, bore sight the aircraft. So, let, a lot of people don't know that you have to bore, like kind of like a, a rifle, you have to bore sight the aircraft so the HUD and everything is looking at the right stuff. Right. And if you bore sight them, uh, they're, you know, they're, they're spot on. It's, it's really good platform for close air support. But uh, anyway, so 25, we took off a 25 millimeter cannon. Uh, we had an uh, LMAV and a, mm-hmm. uh, um, a pod. So we had a can, so because you got to remember, we were doing, we were doing low intensity stuff. So this yeah. is what, in Iraq. So we had a, um, uh, a lightning pod and then we had an LMAB on one aircraft and then the other aircraft, you had a lightning pod and a, uh, a JDAM. So we could hit a moving target or we can put mm-hmm. it on, um, you know, like if we had to go bomb on coordinate for whatever reason, you could, you could uh, put it on a coordinate. Now, if we knew that we were going to go up and, and, uh, and not be like loitering around, because what we were trying to do is give the guy, you never knew what was going to happen in Iraq. So we were right. trying to stay on station as long as possible. So that's yeah. why if you want to load it up, you can load it up pretty heavy uh, with thousand pound bombs. Uh, it, it, you always got to remember with fixed wing aircraft, I'm, I'm pr- pretty sure it's with helicopters too, but I don't know. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but you always have to worry about asymmetry, right? So like if you sure. have, let's say you have a thousand pounds uh, on each pylon, right? A thousand pound bomb. Yeah. Um, so you have the outer pylons, the inner pylons, and you, you drop every bomb, but one hangs on the outer pylon, 1,000 pounds, and you have to come in and BL on a ship. Yeah. You, you, you have just limited yourself uh, with a 1,000-pounder out there. I don't, uh, I'm trying to remember. I don't even think you can land with it. You'd have to go do a roll-on landing somewhere. Mm. Doing blue water ops, it's a problem, right? So we always mm-hmm. drop the out, outer ones first because if, if the outer ones don't go, then you can't drop the inner ones because it's, you need it for symmetry. Stability. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, long story short is then now you're worried about coming back, especially if you have the VL on a ship, uh, you're worried about, okay, I have bombs on now. Can I, can I VL? Do I have the performance to VL? So if you're working blue water ops, there's, you know, you're, you're always in a box, you know, you never, there's always a lot of, moons that have to align to make sure that you come back all right but if you're working and you have a divert for a roll-on landing then you know your options become more so anyway in rack we were we were working with roll-on lands but let's say you had thousand pounds bombs on there you could get those off so you can hit you know four dimpies four targets uh especially if they're jdams you can just kind of fly over and, and hit boom 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 hit four uh, right. at the same time now if you load up even more you let's say you go 500 pounders you could put them on turs ITERs and uh, and you can load uh, three per ITER, so you can start loading up pretty heavy uh, to the max weight of the aircraft, which I'm trying to remember is I think it's thirty two five, thirty three five, something like that. Um, it, it's on Jane's. It's not nothing classified. So sure. um, you can load all the way up to the top to the lo- load of the aircraft. But the other thing you got to worry about is if you drop too many at one time, you got to worry about wing flex because you're flying around and the wings are kind of drooping because they have all this weight on them. And if you release everything at one time, the wings flex up and, uh, you just, that's why you got to make sure they're separated. And, uh, 
and that's why we normally drop left, right, left, right, left, right, because we give time. Um, a, if you hang up, you have you only have one ace. So the, like the worst case scenario you could have is like, let's say you tried to drop both bombs off the left wing and you never tried to drop them off the right wing. And then <laughs> both bombs come off the left wing and then you have them on the right wing, try to get them, none of them come off. Now you, you just totally yeah. hold yourself. So you always have to sequence your bombs correctly. But anyway, right. so we, the Harrier carried a whole bunch of stuff. To answer your question, I kind of digressed again. Right? Sorry, <laughs> you kind of heard you <laughs> heard me like a sheepdog, right? Thirty years in the Marines, your brain is is mush right now. So I understand. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we can carry LMAVs. We we can carry almost anything in the arsenal, quite frankly, right? And mm. then uh, with an, another political thing is uh, the AMRAM testing for which is air to air missile, right? For the Harrier. The Harrier has a lot of capability with AMRAM, but uh, the Navy didn't want the Harrier to have the AMRAM for obvious reasons. Because if you can do, you know, vertical takeoff from a small deck with AMRAM capability and and do air to air very effectively, because really air to air with an AMRAM is shooting missiles BVR beyond beyond visual range. So uh, if you could do that, now that threatens the big deck carrier again, of course. Blah blah blah. Right. So. you know, the Navy has two, two navies, the brown water Navy and the blue water Navy and the blue water Navy is like their, their crown jewel. So you never want to attack that. You get a very, uh, <laughs> you get a very visceral reaction. <laughs> if you try to attack that. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, regardless, um, they can carry, it can carry almost anything in the inventory. The most thing that, you know, we, because of the AMRAM issue, we mostly carried for self-defense. We carried sidewinders. Uh, but we also we very rarely did air to air as a as a mission. We did we trained to it. We had air combat tactics instructors. I was an air combat tactics instructor, and we fought air to air and we did all that, so we knew how to do it. You know, especially if we had to defend ourselves. Right. But um, we we were the Marine Corps saw us as close air support platforms, air to ground platforms, and that's really what I see the Harrier doing the best too because. The avionics and, and the weapon systems and all the stuff that are on there are all designed to give you situational awareness during close air support, and uh, mm. and it, it was optimized for that. Yeah, it's it's well, it goes back to what you talked about in the beginning of supporting the Marines on the ground and being able to take off in difficult you know conditions, but being able to put put bombs on target and do the cast roll. But yeah, you got to be able to protect yourself, to, especially. If we start going back to the older way of doing stuff, as you mentioned, uh, and, and we same way in the helicopter world, fuel was more important than ammo in the coin fight because your ability to be on station, your ability to talk on the radio and, and coordinate things and help was you were going to do that every single day. You might shoot something, you know, but you were definitely going to be overhead loitering or some some bad situation for as long as humanly possible. So having more fuel on on board was good did you guys um i know you shot rockets did you guys ever have like the uh, laser guided rockets i've never shot them the laser guided rockets especially with the pod you could you can shoot i've, I've never shot them so mm-hmm. uh, but yeah uh the rockets are zuni rockets are pretty fun you got the the 2.5 and you got the five inch and uh, those right. are fun to shoot it's like yeah, it, it's like old Vietnam one. stuff. You roll in, and you're like, <laughs> you like, see them all come off. You see them like detonating that, and you're like, hur, 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 hur. you know, like yeah. So, but but uh, but uh, again, as far as effectiveness for weapons, like a JDAM from higher altitude, staying at a small arms fire was a lot more effective. Um, yeah, you know, and then 
with the Zuni rockets. Um, they were real fun. Uh, but depending on what you're going after, their, um, you know, their penetration and so on and so forth. So you have to, you know, do obviously, as you know, the JMEMS, the munitions manual, you got to do ma- weapons matching to targets to make sure you have the optimal effects. You know that. Yeah, exactly. And then you got to take into consideration of what else is around and the probability of error and all that good stuff. Sure. Yeah. What, um, so we talked about coin, but again, as we're getting like, you know, we're looking at Ukraine and, and the future of, of maybe having to worry about that type of fight again, how would the Harrier operate is it's not going to be flying up high. It's going to be down low. Uh, well, it depends, right? I mean, mm. again, I, I, that's such a weasel answer because, like, but it, <laughs> it's like everything depends, as you know, sure, right? So, yeah. like, what's the what's the uh, missile defense system like? You know, right. can we hide behind terrain? Yeah, I mean, okay, then we'll be low, maybe, you know, but uh, you build more as situational awareness, you get more time if somebody shoots at you, so on and so forth, up high. And then you can use altitude for energy, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So it all depends on what you want to do uh, and, and really what the threat is. is really what's going to dictate that. Like if a, if a threat dictates you low and terrain masking and all that, um, then you would go low. But if not, if you can stay high, you'd probably want with some of these standoff weapons, um, uh, you'd want to stay high and, and drop from a ways away. Like a JDAM, you know, can glide in for a while and then, uh, mm-hmm. and so you want to, you know, obviously you want to stay away from the target area as much as possible, especially if it's defended. So it, it all depends, but yeah. Right. Uh, the Harrier performs very well down low. It was designed in the Cold War era, right, to fly low, those big elephant ears, um, mm-hmm. especially on a cold day. Uh, that thing that thing can can really move out down low. Once you get up higher, it starts bleeding energy um, because it's a big turbofan. Uh, but anyway, it, it, can, it can work in either uh, environment. You just got to know the pluses and minuses of your weapon system and, and utilize those to your best, best advantage, of course. Right. So how many uh, deployments did you do? Uh, three total. When did, when was your first deployment? Where'd you go? Uh, Iwakuni, Japan. Okay. So we did what they call the unit deployment program. Um, uh, yeah, my career path, I did everything the Marine Corps ever asked me to. And, uh, I wanted to go deploy, especially in 2003, I was in the Pentagon and they were looking for a, cast fixed wing guy you know and i'm like that's me i mean because i was doing cast issues at the pentagon and they wouldn't let me go um but anyway so then my first uh, uh deployment was iwakuni japan we did unit deployment over there uh went over there with all our aircraft and it was it was it was good i mean uh it was just it, it was more of, you know and we did a lot of training don't get me wrong but it was a lot of fun because you're in a new country uh yeah. you're with a you know all your buddies and and your whole focus like there were, you know, you're home and, and you know this, uh, when you're home, you have family issues you got to do. You got to go to like, you know, kids soccer games or football games or whatever. Right. Um, when you're deployed forward, there's not though. And I hate to call them distractions because they're really not distractions. It's the best part of life. Right. But those right. are distractions at home where you don't get those at when you're deployed. So you get, you know, work hard, play hard kind of thing, deployed mentality as you, I'm sure, you know, yeah, um, that's fun. It was fun there. Uh, Second deployment was on uh, the WASP, did a MU deployment. Uh, 
And then we, we, we participated in Operation Determined Falcon, where we were flying along the border, uh, see if they would shoot at us kind of thing. Uh, we, what year was this? Um, what year was that? It was 98, I guess. 98, yeah. Okay. And then, uh, and then um, anyway, we were on the ship for, we ended up being, how many months were we there? Seven, I guess. Six and a half. Six and a half, almost seven, I guess. We were on ship. We got extended just a little bit. Um, because normal, a normal, like Mew is six months, generally speaking, you know, um, based on the, the, the programming of it. And then, uh, okay. I, I took a squadron to Iraq. I, I was a commanding officer, took a squad. I was fortunate enough to a be a commanding officer and B take, you know, guys into combat. Right. And if you want to call Iraq combat, because as you know, it was low intensity. Um, we were at camp, you know, Cupcake Al Assad Air Base, and uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, if, were we in danger? Like, you know, slightly, very slightly, and uh, you know, it was more like you know, shooting fish in a barrel kind of thing, you know. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, we it took them to Iraq, and we were out there from uh, when did we leave? We left March, and we got back in October. I guess was that seven months, eight, six months, six and a half, seven months, whatever it was. We were out there for that. And what year was that? Uh, that's a good question. 2007. Yeah. So we were there oh, during okay. the Al-Anbar Awakening. So like the Al-Anbar Awakening happened, like uh, all the, the sheikhs decided, hey, you know, the, you know, the, the Al-Qaeda comes in and they kill everybody in the village and the teachers and blah, blah, blah. And then Americans come in and they give us like dental work and they help us out and they build stuff. Right. So like the Al-Anbar Awakening is like, hey, we so like things like midway during our deployment, things got very calm, very fast because the locals were basically taking care of the problem on the ground is which really what you want anyway. Right. It, you right. Know, the locals taking care of it. So uh, they decided the Americans were good because of, we were doing a lot of good stuff there for them. And Al Qaeda was coming in and terrorizing everybody. So they, they started killing all these Al Qaeda guys and it, it, things got, um, I wouldn't say boring, but they got slow. Let's just say that. What was like a, a typical day in the life of a Harrier pilot in Iraq? Or in Iraq? Coming out of Saudi. Coming out of Saudi and going into Iraq, I guess. So a typical day was, um, well, we always had to have the standard duties, you know, standard stuff that make a, a squadron function, which you're very familiar with. But mm-hmm. uh, for me as a CEO, my standard day was I'd always go have, you know, a CO meeting. Uh, I would, I would fly normally because we were with the amount of people in the aircraft we had there, we normally flew at least one time a day. And, uh, you'd, they'd normally be 3.5 hour flights. Cause we'd go up, uh, we'd support a mission. We could either pre-mission tank and then support a mission and then come back in and mid-mission tank, support a mission and bingo back to Al-Assad. Um, come in, we would actually, you know, get up, uh, briefing updates for Intel. Me, I would have to go to meeting. I get Intel updates. Uh, we'd have the, the flight schedule that was done the day before to execute. So those guys were getting up, you know, and, and we, we were working basically 24 hour ops, not basically we were working 24 hour ops. So we always had continuous stuff going on. So when you slept, you slept knowing you were going to get up, you were going to have to, uh, get the Intel updates. You have to plan your mission, make sure, because you know, normally try to plan it based on what you knew the night before as much as you can plan the rest mm-hmm. of your mission, brief it and go execute it and come back and then debrief it. And that, that took up the vast majority of the day. And then mm-hmm. 
Uh, you always, since you were in the desert, there's nothing else to do. You always PT, they always went to the gym, which they had a pretty nice gym, which was great. Um, and then the, the food, um, the food was actually, you know, pretty good. Uh, they, yeah. it wasn't MREs like, at, you know, at Al-Assad, they had pretty good food. And actually one thing that, that sticks out in my mind is, uh, they had, um, Outback Steakhouse come in on, uh, was it father? <laughs> and they, they, they literally, they, they sent the, all their own people to serve us. And all the food, so we had steaks. We had anything on any of their restaurants, like like Krab is one of their restaurants and so on. So, so we had like steak and all this stuff, and they paid for everything, and they came out. And I, I'll never forget that because I thought that was mm-hmm. awesome. But, uh, yeah, the food was pretty good. So really what you did is you ate, you PT'd, you briefed, you debriefed, you flew, and then and prayed that the, the deployment went faster because it just seems like <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah it's, it's Groundhog Day. I'm sure you had similar experience. You had to probably, I, I probably just described your day too, I would imagine, right? Well, I, to some extent, it's funny because I think that the, I think on the, the jet guy community, you guys do a lot more or have to do a lot more planning um, because you have to worry about things like, you know, and I'm guessing on these things, but you know, you're worrying about the, the tanker, you know, where are we going to get gas and, and when and what time, you know, how does, I, I imagine there's windows of opportunity or something. You can tell me if I'm wrong, but, um, just seems like there's a lot more that you guys plan because we would show up and, um, you know, every day was groundhog day. It was just, you know, flying QRF is basically what we called it. And you're just flying, waiting for the phone call that something bad is happening at X grid. And then you go over there, but you know, we'd, we'd show up, get the O and I brief, like you said, just kind of figure out, you know, which was generally yesterday's news. You know, no one ever really told you anything predictive. It was just, you know, there was an IED here yesterday. Well, great. You know, I'm not there yesterday. Um, so you, you, you listen to all them rattle on about stuff and maybe they'll tell you something interesting. Like, Hey, there's a convoy going on over here or there's an operation going on over here, blah, blah, blah. And then you'll get our little, we'll get the same if tell us, hey, there's Harriers overhead or there's F-22s or, or whatever, something's overhead. And here's the frequency in case you need them. And we never really did. And then uh, and then go pre-flight and just fly around, you know, aimlessly almost to the, you know, we didn't really have a plan unless we were dictated one. You know, a lot of times it was, if you're the, the air mission commander for the flight, you'd be like, all right, let's head south. We're going to go down south and we're going to check out these places. And then, then, then you stop somewhere and get gas and then you say, oh, let's go north now. Let's go up this way. Yeah. So it seems like you guys typically took off with a little bit more direction and guidance as to where you're going and what you're going to be doing. No, we, ne- yeah, we didn't deviate, uh, unless we had like a troop in contact or something, but, uh, mm-hmm. we went, we, we went. So what was interesting is like, you call up the Marine facts. Like we knew who we were going to support. Right. So right. you call them up over white, you know, secure. And you start talking about what, Hey, what do you want us to do? And the Marine facts always had a game plan for you. They're like, Hey, mm. We want you to come to the lollipop. We want you to like you search the lollipop, and then we're going to come up. We have a patrol here, and they, they blah yeah. blah blah, right? So we knew exactly what we we're doing. And and this yeah. isn't a dig on the Air Force guys, but we called the Air Force guys like when we go to support those guys, and we're like, hey, uh, we're, we're coming to support you. And they're like, who are you? Like, what are guys yeah. like, on, <laughs> like four hours, three hours? What do you want us to do? And I don't know. I just search the road. You know, like it was just uh, there was always a game plan. <laughs> And uh, the Air Force guys just seem to be, I don't know, marking time. I, I, that's not a dig on the Air Force because they're, they're good at what they do. But uh, it just it was a difference in mentality, yeah. Well, I think, and I'm going to, I'm just going to guess, it's probably more of a ding on the Army. And the reason I say that is because the Air Force is not owning land, right? The Marines, at least when you were supporting Marines, there was Marines on the ground and they were battle space owners, I'm going to guess. Yeah. The Air Force is not owning battle space, so there's just this poor 
Air Force guy whose lot in life is to be stationed with an army unit. Yeah. And so he's sitting at the radio and the army guys like we just we're just doing everything. And so, yeah, they're probably not giving him any guidance. And so they're just like, yeah, we just care about roads. Just look at roads. And so now yeah. there's a Harrier calling up. What do you want us to do? Just look at roads. Just, yeah. just keep looking at roads. So it's probably really a, I hate to say it, but a ding on the army because we, we don't we don't do good planning when it comes to that type of stuff. And I think that's a culture of Marines you know, every Marine I've ever talked to and worked with, there really is that, that small unit idea, but that culture of we're all these components, whereas the army's got a shit ton of aircraft. I mean, just an absolute, you know, huge, vast number, but we don't act like we do. You know, if you talk to a ground force commander in the army, he, you know, he, he, he has a, a basic understanding of what the aircraft can do to support him, but it's generally wrong. You know, <laughs> he just thinks, well, we just show up at the nick of time and shoot hellfires and stuff, and then and then it's good. So there's never really a good forward plan as to what we're going to use these aircraft to do. And then it bleeds over to us, and that's why, you know, a lot of times we were bad about having a deliberate idea of what to do. We're just, let's just fly around and look at roads, and knowing full well that we're probably not going to catch somebody doing something bad on the road, but yeah. maybe it's just a deterrent. You know, I, you know, but generally it's just fly around away for somebody to call for help and then hope that yeah. we have enough gas to get there and do something or, you know, but, um, so I got a funny story of a road, finding somebody doing something bad on the road. Hey, just one, before I tell the story, what a lot of people don't realize is the size of the Navy that the army has with the pre-position. Yeah. 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 The, the, the army has the second largest Navy in the, in the United States. Nobody realizes that. I don't think. Anyway. Yeah, we have so much stuff, and it's yeah. funny, like how much we don't like in the army know about what we do, you know, like because yeah. yeah, there's a lot of army guys that don't realize that, and uh, yeah. yeah, it's a it's a big dumb animal, so I always say, yeah, so catching yeah. people doing bad things on the road, right? So I'm uh, I'm searching a road just south of uh, where was it? I guess it was Karma. Anyway, and we find these. We find, maybe maybe it was a little bit west of Karma. I'm, I'm, I've had so many missions that they've run together. But anyway, we yeah. find these guys that, the, 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 and he's digging. Um, he's digging on the side of the road, and you know, you know what that means for for a guy in the air. Like that guy's putting in an yeah. ID. So I'm yeah. talking back and forth <laughs> with the ground guys. Got video on him, right? And I'm like, hey, let me let me let me drop on this guy. And they're like, hold on, calm down. And I'm like, right. no, let me let me drop on this guy. He's obviously putting an ID. He's right on the side of the road there. And he keeps going back to this cave and blah, blah, blah. Well, what ends up happening when they had a truck there and all this stuff, right? So they, uh, they're they like, we're going to, we, we got a guy, we got a uh, combat patrol in the area. We're going to roll these guys up. So I'm like, all right, you know, <laughs> like I'm like a <laughs> child, right? And, right uh, yeah. and I was totally wrong. You know what it was? These guys were onion farmers. They were going back to, and they were digging on the side of the road because I think they had a flat or something. And, uh, mm. and they were going to the caves to get their onions and load their truck up. So they, these guys were onion farmers. Imagine I, I would have felt horrible had I dropped. Them. Oh yeah. But, yeah. The, but the guy on the ground was like, calm down, calm down. Like, I, and I was calm, but I was just like, come on. Yeah, they're obviously in placing IEDs, which is a good lesson learned. And I, I took that with me to resume. I like, don't ever assume somebody's doing something that you think he is until you, until you confirm yeah. it. You know? That's like the, the biggest challenge in that coin environment was because it, it seemed like it was feast or famine when it came to shooting bad guys. And let's just call it what it is. If you're an attack guy, that's what you want to do, right? I mean, you, you as a Harrier guy, you want to drop bombs on bad dudes. I want to shoot, you know, 30 mil and, and shoot hellfires at bad dudes. And then it's, you have guys that they go out and they get into shoot 
and they come back and it's like, you know, it's high energy because they just got to do the thing that they've been training to do. And, and now you're looking for your opportunity. And then those things happen just like you described, because I, I don't think what you just described is very rare, um, you know, a, a rare experience across the, you know, the force, if you will. There's plenty of guys who flew that had something similar happen where you see something on the ground. And you're like, man, this is it. These dudes are guilty as hell. Yeah. And then it turns out, no, they're not. And, you know, and fortunately for you and fortunately for others, myself included, because I've had those opportunities as well. And you find out that, that it wasn't. And fortunately, we never pulled the trigger on it. Um, but, you know, some people have and then they got to live with that. And, you know, sometimes they're OK with it because of the, everything pointed to they did the right thing. And it's like, yeah, you, you, you follow all the rules. You did the right thing. But at the end of the day, it was still not it was still an onion farmer. Um, yeah. I remember seeing these guys climbing the side of a mountain. We just got to Afghanistan and there was this, I don't know, a, a squad's worth of dudes traversing this windy ass trail up the side of a mountain that we just happened to come across and they're carrying RPGs and, and all kinds of stuff. And, and we're like, Oh my God, this is perfect. You know, and I'm working up with my wingman. I'm like, okay, I'm going to shoot a hellfire here. You're going to shoot a hellfire here. These dudes are going to fly off the mountain. Like it's going to be glorious. You know, like this is an amazing first week in Afghanistan or whatever. And I mean, we are minutes away from lining up for the shot. And of course, we're calling back to headquarters and letting them know what we're seeing and stuff. And they're doing intel. And they're like, yeah, this is a known Taliban route. You know, and we're like, this is perfect. And yeah. moments before we pull the trigger, the, the headquarters calls and says, hey, we, we just talked to special forces. That's some Afghan dudes that they work with. And that's, yeah. And, you know, it's just, yeah, we're yeah. moments away from, <laughs> from nuking these dudes that are friendly. But it felt right. You know, and it felt good. But, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, it's tough. We, it's tough in coin. Yeah, we would have been well within our rights of dropping that bomb. I mean, we would have killed right. those guys around you fine. And, and I, I, I'm just so glad we didn't, you know? Yeah. But anyway, yeah, uh, yeah the guy on the ground, it, it, he was right to be more cautious. I, it, he was more familiar with the AO. And that's why the ROE set up as it is. You know, those guys know their AO better than anybody. Right. Uh, but anyway. Yeah, it, it, visiting, you don't have a lay of the land. You don't know what what normal looks like necessarily. I mean, maybe you fly the same route over and over and then you get an idea of like, well, this is normal and this isn't, but generally speaking, yeah, those guys on the ground and it's good that they are. Cause every now and then you run across those guys that are controlling that stuff and they're just as hungry and they yeah. see an opportunity. I mean, you know, unfortunately my unit was involved in something like that where, you know, a UAS operator was hungry, you know, ignored the fact that those are actually children, not a bunch of midgets, you know, and things like that and starts clearing aircraft to shoot stuff. And, uh, you know, it turns into a really bad day for a lot of people. Um, and, but yeah, you're, you're well within your rights. You did everything that you were told, but you still got to live with that, that problem. Yeah. So well, I had uh, another, another situation with, uh, so what they were doing is blocking roads and then they would, the cars would come up and, and there was some brutal stuff going on in, in Iraq, as you're probably well aware. And they yeah. were taking like people and, and killing them and taking their cars and using them for BBIDs. Yeah. Anyway, so I roll up on this, uh, uh, it was an agricultural area. It was, uh, I'm trying to remember, it was Sacagawea. Anyway, um, Sacagawea, or, uh, I think it was over there. Anyway, regardless where it was, uh, roll up on these uh, guys, and there's two two vehicles blocking the road, and it looks like a, the classic uh, roadblock, right? So yeah. I'm like, hey, I got a, I got a roadblock up here. Um, you know, what do you want to do? They're like, okay, we got a, uh, a Marine patrol, and they, they basically talked me on this Marine patrol. They're like, hey, can you give them a, a – basically a progressive to where they are. And I'm like, yeah, guys, I can make a right here. Anyway, they roll these guys up and they were two, 
peach farmers that were having a big dispute and uh, they were they were trying to like protect their peaches from the other anyway so but it was it was cool because when i took off that day it was like 120 in the shade and these yeah. marines the when i when i basically i basically direct them to where this thing is and there there there's a big berm there so they stop and defilade behind this berm and then they have probably I don't know, maybe a, a, quarter, a half a mile, maybe just under a half mile, between a quarter and a half mile, they have to run and, and roll these guys up. And I'm watching this, as, and, and these guys, it's 120 degrees, they're full battle armor, they roll roll up behind, they stay in defilade. So they do all the right stuff, and they roll these guys up without firing a shot, you know, obviously because – and uh, and they find out that they're these peach farmers. But it was just – it was impressive to watch these guys on the ground because those guys on the ground are the real heroes. They're dealing with this stuff every day. And they never know when there's going to be an IED or, you know, there's, there's going to be – they're going to start getting shot at from some other, like, weird direction or something. And uh, it was just it was just neat to watch the Marines work. It was, they were really good at what they did. Yeah, I love hard work. I can watch it all day long, you know, seeing those yeah. guys down there running around and doing hard work. And meanwhile, you're kind of sitting up high and trying to yeah. stay cool. Did you guys have like any sort of, I assume, air conditioning? I assume it kept pretty cool in the cockpit, especially at altitude. In the cockpit, yeah. So on the ground, it wasn't really what, I mean, you got to try yeah. to cool the avionics, but it wasn't as yeah. good. On the, once you get once you get the uh, up and, you know, because as you know, as you get higher, it gets cooler. But also, when you have the RPMs up on the engine, it runs the air conditioning a lot better too. So, okay. yeah, we had air conditioning and it worked. You know, worked pretty well. Yeah, yeah. When I flew the Kiowa, we had we had nothing. We had a heater, but we didn't have air conditioning. And we typically flew flew with the doors off. And so, yeah, we would you know on patrol like, hey, let's go north because north was higher, and we'd climb yeah. up in the mountains and, and just cool off, you know, in the summer. And, but um, and then when I went to the Apache, it did have air conditioning and. I mean, literally ice chunks would fly past my head, you know, and people had told me like, yeah, it gets really cold and can spit out ice and stuff. And I kept, something kept drawing my attention to the left. I kept looking over like, what the hell, what am I seeing? And finally I caught it. It was a piece of ice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah that helps. That helps a lot. Well, we've learned that you don't like, uh, there's, you have something with farmers. Like peach no, farmers, I, onion I, farmers. I, I like farmers. Farmer hunter. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but there, were, there was, uh, there, there was another time, one of my, uh, one of my JOs, um, he basically was, so what they were doing is they were trying to steal, you know, vehicles for IEDs and they yeah. ended up putting an L, uh, LMAP on this vehicle that they, they killed this family and they, uh, they took this car and he, he saw the whole thing and boom, and we got clearance to fire from the ground guys and him and his wingman, I wasn't on this mission, but we, I, I saw the, the tape of it. He put an LMAP right in the back of that car as it's driving away. It was nice because those guys just did some evil and they just had yeah. an LMAP basically take out their car and kill them all. Yeah, that's that's yeah. that's a good feeling. When you see a known bad guy get what he's got coming to him. Yeah, yeah. Um, God, a, a Maverick into a car, though. That, that cannot leave much. <laughs> yeah, but it was a good shot. It was a moving car. Sure. Going, you know, it, it was a great yeah. shot. Yeah. yeah no that's that's outrageous um yeah it's funny the the size of munitions we'll use on like you said you know a maverick on a car i mean that thing's designed for for the biggest of tanks and yeah. then you know in the army we were shooting hellfires you know two dudes on the side of the road digging an ied and you're throwing an anti-tank missile at them it's uh it's yeah. wild some of the stuff but you know it's the nature of the business yeah hmm. so uh you did the one tour in iraq and you said you were commanding so 
I know you, you retired 30 years, full colonel. Uh, what did you, how many hours did you fly the Harrier? Like, what is your total time? Uh, total time is right around uh, 2,100 hours, which okay. doesn't sound like a lot, right? But each, each sort, especially if you're doing like, you know, like depends on what you're training mission wise, each sortie, um, especially if you're air to air is like an hour sortie. So if you go right. with, um, like a close air support sortie, you're trying to hang on the blades and them as much, you know, you give them like a 1.5, 1.6 without tanks, you know, like an hour yeah. and a half. So you start adding up, you know, each sortie and it, it, that's actually not, that's a lot of time in a Harrier because, uh, it doesn't sound like a lot when you're flying airliners and these guys have like, you know, 10,000. Stuff, but but uh well they have ten thousand hours of the same hour you know what yes, i mean like it's just yeah. the same oh my god it's mind-numbing yeah yeah well it seems like i was we, we worked with some f-16s here out of bragg they they were down at shaw and um it was it was through some jtacs we ended up meeting these this squadron and they wanted to do some work with us and vice versa and we're like yeah you guys want to fly up you know we figured oh they'll fly up from shaw to bragg because it's you know for them like a five minute flight you know it's nothing yeah. And they were like, yeah, but we won't have any gas, you know, by the time we get there. So can yeah. you guys come to us? You know, for us, it's like a 45 minute ride down the Shaw uh, to do the stuff. But I'd never really thought about that, too. Like, unless unless the Jets got tanker support, that they don't. It is kind of limited. Like, yeah, you're going to get that hour, hour and a half flight. And then you got to come land because you just you can't tank up. And, uh, you know, for us, we don't obviously have that problem. Yeah. What's a normal flight in an Apache say? Um. I mean, you have about with the with the Robbie tank, you've got about three hours worth of gas. Yeah, and then, you know, and then of course you back back plan off of that. But um, I mean, normal training flight, I'd say we we do with a bag of gas, probably about a two hour flight. But it's just so much easier for us to get gas, you know. I mean, especially like in Iraq and Afghanistan, it was a farp everywhere. You know, every fob had a farp on it. So, you know, when we were overseas, we were doing easily four to six hour days flying every day and uh sometimes you know more depending on the situation but you know you you'd stopped and grab gas two or three times in a day and uh and get out and stretch your legs maybe while they're while they're tanking it up but it doesn't you know it doesn't take that long you're probably in the farp for 15 20 minutes depending on on what you're flying and then you're back yeah. at it so um yeah that's no, nice yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it's not you know it's it's good and bad, right? It's it's because <laughs> sometimes you're just out there for, you know, it's like I told one guy the problem with doing nothing is knowing when you're done. You know, you're just out there just flying to fly, turning JP8 into noise, waiting for somebody to need your help, which of course always happens at like you know five yeah. hours and fifty minutes into the yeah. into the day. You're like ah, we'll, we'll just do six hours today, and then you know it's ten minutes till, and suddenly there's troops in contact, so there's another two hours of your life. Um. Yeah. But you guys overseas, you were tanking all the time. So it's what it sounds like every, every day you're having yeah, we, to hit the tanker. We were pre-mission, mid-mission tank, and then bingo and back. And then if something happened and we had to stay on station, we still had ordinance. Uh, yeah. We could, we could see the, the beauty of the Marine Corps is, is one of the guys that was over there. Uh, he's, he's a good friend of mine was a C-130 guy. And uh, so all I have to do is call him and say, Hey, like I need this, but this is happening. Like one time we were in troop in contact. Um, and we, we had pods on and we're watching the whole thing and we didn't want to break. And we had, and, and, uh, and we're, we're saying, we have to go get gas soon, you know? And they're like, Hey, can you just hang out just a little bit longer? We're like, okay. Yeah. But I have to, and next thing you know, uh, Glenn was the guy, uh, he's like, Hey, I'm overhead. Just come up and tank and keep your pod on him. 
So they moved mm. the tanker track down to they they cleared it up with the uh, AT with with the uh, who was it in Iraq Kingpin was it Kingpin, Kingpin. yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and there's so many controlling agencies they they, they blur together but uh um, yeah. they, they they cleared it up and they said hey yeah go overhead so they were overhead we we literally kept our pods on while we were fueling because he wow. he listened to the whole thing and he just he you know basically moved his aircraft down to help us out that's that's the you know that's the beauty of the flexibility of the marine corps is like they everybody when especially if you're if you have like marines in contact or something everybody wants to help and uh and you bring the whole you know bear to the whole force of the marine corps on you, you get, you're dealing with you know i wouldn't want to deal with them as an as an adversary let's put it that way yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's another one of those coin things too. When something's going on, it's kind of like um, it's like watching five year olds play soccer. You know, everybody swarms to the ball, so you've got you've got action, and everyone's heading in that way. Everybody wants to yeah. to help out and, and be a part of it, and you know, and, and and part of it's like, oh, I want to get in this, but the other part of it is, hey, it's, hey, somebody needs help, and this is this is what I'm here for. So let's yeah. let's flex yeah. on over there. And imagine for the jet guys, it's pretty easy. Iraq's relatively small. It's pretty easy for you to get from one place to another fast. Yeah. It wasn't bad. Like the way we had it set up, we were there for a while before, you know, like 2007, we had been there for a while. So they set up, they learned, they did all the like trial and error, best practices and so on and so forth. So like literally we had it down to a science that we would be able to give the most time on station and, and, you know, support the most amount of people. And so anyway, it was pretty good to the way we had it set up. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, yeah, we've been going strong for a good hour and 20 minutes. So we'll go ahead and just wrap it up there. Um, I've been wanting to get somebody on the show to talk about the Harrier for a while. I've, I've, I've been a little bit of a fanboy of, of that aircraft myself. Um, so it's been interesting to talk to somebody who's got some experience with it. And, uh, I mean, unfortunately my only experience with a Harrier was watching one, uh, turn into a fireball in Afghanistan. You saw that, that British, I think it was a British one where they like were landing and I guess something went wrong and he, he bounced and the, the pilot ejected. I don't know. I'm not familiar with that. When did that happen? Oh, okay. Uh, this was, well, I was over there. It was 2009. Really? I must've missed that one. I, I thought yeah, I knew sh- most, of the, most of the Harrier accidents. Yeah. Yeah, that, well, there's video of this one too. Somebody just happened to be filming this guy come in, um, but they, uh, yeah, I mean, the guy was fine. Like I said, he ejected. I, I guess I don't know what went wrong, but um, from what I recall of the video, he, he came in a little, I guess, too hard. They were doing like a rolling landing, and I guess he came in a little too hard and bounced, and or something had gone wrong. But whatever, he ejected. The aircraft balled up. And then fast forward a couple days later, I had a hydraulic failure on my aircraft, so we in a Kiowa, you, you had to do a, a running landing on the skids and stuff. Cause you couldn't hover with no hydraulics. So yeah. we come running in this tiny little, you know, 5,000 pound aircraft shuts down the entirety of Kandahar airport. And so, um, we're getting it hooked up to this trailer to, to tow it off the runway and the air force little follow me truck comes over and he's like, y'all need to hurry up. There's planes. And we're like, you know, we're going as fast as we can. And, uh, a few minutes later, comes back and says, "Okay, the C five that was coming in is diverting, but the Harriers are mis- are fuel critical. They're coming in. Cover your ears." And so these two Harriers shot their approach just past us, you know, and just like touched down. I don't know, a couple hundred meters just past us. Oh my God, so loud! Probably the loudest thing I'd ever heard. Those things screaming right overhead. And of course, you know, we're looking over, and the the burning, you know, the Hulk from the one a week ago that had crashed is right next to us, and we're just like, "Please don't crash! Please don't crash!" Yeah. yeah. 
Well, I mean, what people don't understand is like, like, especially like you're doing blue water ops or like even like operating in Iraq, like, and you have guys in kind you, you, you stay as long as you can. So you can put yourself into a bind. Like my XO, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in my office in Iraq and he, he's coming back. He's like, Hey, we're on fumes. We, they, they, they were supporting a a troop in contact and there's a, there's a a sandstorm coming and they're like, you got to go back. You know, they're they're right at Al-Assad coming in for the break. And they're like, you can't land. There's a a sandstorm. He's like, I got to land anyway. So we, we can kind of, um, with our, with our, uh, FLIR, we can kind of look through it somewhat. And, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, he's in, a, so I, I'm outside trying to say, and I, all I can hear him and I hear, you know, he put his wingman on a, on a deck first, of course. And that, cause he was the mm-hmm. XO and he comes back in and out of sandstorms like raging and, and, uh, and he mm-hmm. landed he, and, and I don't know if you've seen a sandstorm in Iraq. Yeah. You can't see two feet in front of your face. He's looking through the hut and he ends up landing it. And, uh, I was like, thank God, because, wow. uh, that, that, but you're on the edge all the time and you can, yeah. and one little thing goes wrong. And, uh, so people don't understand it. It's like, well, how did, how did the pilot put himself in that position? Well, he put himself in that position cause he was helping guys on the ground and then right. he didn't expect a sandstorm that wasn't forecast, you know, blah, blah, blah. There's so many things that can go on, but you, when you're flying yeah. on the edge, there's it, just, you're in danger a lot of times. Yeah. And people yeah, don't, even realize, don't realize the, uh, the environment you fly in. Yeah. No, that's, that's a very true statement that weather can change dramatically over there and any number of other conditions can change. And, um, yeah, then you're kind of, you're stuck. Well, cool. Thanks so much for taking the morning and, uh, and doing this. I mean, we've been trying to get this scheduled for a little while, so thanks a lot for doing it. Yeah, no worries. Anytime. All right. So as I said, there is an announcement I want to make and it's really no easy way to say it. So I'll just say it. Uh, This will be the last episode of the podcast. Uh, I know some of you might be scratching your head as to why. Um, Honestly, a variety of reasons. Uh, This has probably been, I won't say a long time coming, but it's certainly been on my mind for the past few months. Um, You know, a lot of things. Uh, One of them, you know, the podcast just in general, I don't really feel like has taken off uh, like I thought maybe that it would or that maybe it even should. Uh, it's very hard to sort of do stuff like this and, uh, you know, you have expectations, you, you compare yourselves, you can't help but to uh, compare yourself and what you're doing with, uh, other, you know, competitive podcasts, if you will, in this, in this, uh, case. And, uh, yeah, just kind of scratch my head and looking at things and looking at all the other things that I got going on in my life. And, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of, uh, is the juice worth the squeeze? And I think at this point, uh, I can honestly say that it is not. Uh, I've enjoyed it for the time that I was. I, I really enjoyed talking to all the people that I did, the interviews. I uh, did not enjoy the editing and um, frankly got kind of tired of chasing people down. Um, I've had a lot of uh, instances of talking to someone who might be interested to come on the show and they agree and then they ghost me. I've had people literally cancel and say, never mind, I don't want to do it the day of. And uh, that just kind of wears on you after a while. And um, just kind of honestly want to cut that part out of my life. So uh, not much more to say about it. I appreciate all you guys who uh, did listen. And, uh, you know, I'll leave this podcast up for, I guess, as long as uh, the provider will do it. Um, But uh, thank you so much for, for listening and for your support, your comments. And, of course, a huge thanks to all the people who came onto the show as guests 
And a massive thank you to all the people who supported the show via Patreon. And uh, I, I'm really very thankful. I'll be making some adjustments there, so you guys don't, uh, don't have to worry about uh, you know the financial burden continuing or anything like that. Uh, but yeah, well, I don't know what else to say except thanks, and uh, we'll talk to you guys later. Take it easy.